Storymakers. I'm Angie Powers. I'm Elizabeth Stark. And, and this, this is Storymakers Show. <laughs> and we are so delighted to be here with Joyce Scott. Joyce Scott, who has an MA, is the twin sister of the artist Judith Scott. As an RN and developmental specialist, Joyce has worked for many years with children with Down syndrome and other special needs. And she is now come out with a wonderful memoir called Entwined Sisters and Secrets in the Silent World of Artist Judith Scott. And um, welcome. Welcome, Joyce. Thank you. So um, we are going to start with our check-in about what we're working on and move from there into a check-in with you about what you're working on and a discussion of Entwined. Angie, what are you working on? Um, I am working on my paper for my program and revising my script again. It is Revision is an endless process. Yes. Um, I remember Donna Levin teaching a novel class and saying, write your novel as many times as you can stand and then write it one more time. And I always thought that was severely underestimating the number of times you had to write it after you couldn't stand it anymore. <laughs> um, which may be because I am revising my novel for the umpteenth time and um and i'm doing it on a bit of a crunch as we get ready to as i get ready to do sonoma county writers camp and leave the country so um but it's pretty fun when i get to do it joyce what are you working on i am working very much on arranging book events because i'm in the middle of this book tour and we're going back east early August so I'm still doing a lot of that and then um, I'm writing an introduction to the German edition of Entwined and sort of mailing it back and forth and then I'm thinking about there's a lot of things that didn't make it into the book and some of them I like a lot so I'm, I'm just kind of playing with you know could I make them into more like sh sort of like short stories or um what to do with them. They're like the outtakes. Yes, they are the outtakes. Are they are they stories or are they lines or images? What are what what are the things that got cut? Are they you... short? Well, no, like what what kinds well, of things? Well, they're kind of ep episodes and uh, you know, uh, little stories about things, funny things that Judy did or hmm. mostly that sort of thing. Right. So, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, like more more, more or, of the life of. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I will say I love how um, the book really read it pulls you through with this sense of causality. Um, mm -hmm. Because, um, you know, this, and I think that's such a challenging thing to do with memoir is to figure out what belongs in the story uh -huh. um, and what doesn't. And um, can you talk about the process of figuring out what this book was about or if you knew that right away or how, how did that go? Oh, uh, I, I, I had a sense of a couple of themes that, you know, that would be running through the story and also in terms of the characters, like my mother, the development of my mother um, as she was um, early in our childhood and after Judy was institutionalized and, uh, and then what happened, you know, in the intervening years before Judy became a well-known artist. And so, you know, I 
those were some of the kinds of things that I was pulling through this story. And um, otherwise, I don't know. I, I had an editor who I thought was a little harsh, but she was probably right. You know, she would, she did take out a lot of things, but I think the story does hold together well, and that probably is one of the reasons. I think it's so hard to pull out of a life a, mm. a single sort of a, a, a cohesive story, right? And right. It, it must feel like there's so much left out. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. Inter- it's interesting. It's sort of putting me in mind. One of the things I'm looking at in my paper is composition, and I think I've talked about simplicity in composition, like filmic visual composition. Yeah, and f- photography. And so I, I'm looking at this class from this guy's named Taz Tally, whatever. It's on Linda.com. And we'll put a link in the show notes. And he mm-hmm. kind of breaks down the components of what creates simplicity. And one of the things he talks about that I think is so interesting is he's got four pillars that actually go into good composition, but simplicity is one of the main ones and what he would say is the most important one and has its own four pillars of how you make something simple. It's a very oh. complicated theory of, of simplicity. simplicity. <laughs> but it's actually pretty interesting because one of the things he talks about is separation. So uh-huh. how to clearly delineate different objects, like giving them their separation against each other. Right. Um, but also this idea of detail. So that if you have detail that is overwhelming, mm-hmm. it's really uh, hard for the brain to kind of manage. Uh, whereas if you have detail that is, uh, even though there might be a lot of it, it's easily distinguishable and it's easy to sort of take in as a whole, mm-hmm. that that can still be seen as simple. And I think what's interesting, just talking about like an editor and what an editor might pull out in right. a book might be some of those details that are in fact beautiful but maybe need a different lens maybe you need to look at them more closely right. to give them their own uh you know their own space yeah, yeah and, and that they might be just too much to process in the context of a single mm-hmm. narrative mm-hmm. makes sense that sounds interesting <laughs> huh <laughs> I'll just shut that conversation right on down. Well, so so let's. You're also a, somebody who tells stories. I mean, you're you're an oral storyteller just in in life, right? Um, well, can know. you talk about how you? I mean, how, how many of these stories are stories you told, and how did that voice of telling the story work its way or not into the book? I think in in a lot of cases. It feels like I often wrote first and then told stories because um, I'm more comfortable writing, I think. But um, I know you've known me for a long time, so maybe that's that's not not as true as I think. But um, well, and you journal, so you may be writing, yeah, even in a casual way before you're talking about them. Right, right, and um, yeah, I. What, what, what was the question? About, just about your storyteller voice and how that worked with the writing. Yeah, well, I, th- I think they um, are certainly well integrated. And I don't, I don't know. Maybe one comes first and maybe the other comes first. But I think, I think what comes first is a glass of wine in both cases. <laughs> yes, I think that's a speaking good idea. Speaking for yourself. You know? <laughs> I think I'm speaking for Joyce, too. <laughs> but I, he- I like... I'm. I've been giving a number of talks, you know, for launching the book and then book events. And I'm actually finding that I'm enjoying that, you know, the part of 
one of the things I do is, which probably most people do, but I read, I'll read an excerpt, but then I'll tell some of the story uh, prior to that. Um, and I just, maybe that's my storyteller voice. But anyway, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm very much enjoying that. Yeah, and kind of you're kind of in going back and forth between the yeah. two. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the other thing about memoir that it always intrigues me is the the mm -hmm. fact that it's you know true, and so there's memory and and that kind of question of like is this true? And 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 I know there's a lot of leeway and different kind of rules about what can be you know like with dialogue. Maybe it's recreated. Did, did you give yourself a, a set of guidelines, or did you ever discuss with your editor a set of guidelines around how you got sort of got, pulled out a memory and made it into a, a scene, knowing it was true or not? You know, I, I don't remember discussing that with her, but I do remember feeling completely comfortable with imagining what the dialogue mm -hmm. must have been, say when I was seven or. 11 or with my mother or with uh, with the, at the institution um, so I think it, it was easy for me to give myself permission to do that it didn't even feel like I was making it up it just felt like that that was pretty much what it was and of course I couldn't possibly really remember but but I had a sense for it um, I've, I've thought about my brothers reading reading this memoir, which I don't think they've done yet, but, um, and, you know, I'm sure their memory of what happened on Thanksgiving at our grandparents' house would be very different from mine, and um, I think that's just a, a reality of every everyone's experience and mind and memory, but um, I'm interested to talk to them about it if they ever get around to reading it. Did you do any research or consult photographs or, I mean, did you did you try to, and I know there are a number of books about Judy, did, did you do any sort of supplementary work or did you really try to stick with your own personal experience? I, I went, I looked up our uh, best friend from, Judy's and my best friend beginning when we were two years old and um, spent time with her reminiscing about everything and then I really tried to pick my brother's brains but um, that wasn't very easy my my one brother said what do they call Alzheimer's for childhood <laughs> he just he just didn't remember anything wow. but um, and I went to the institution where Judy was institutionalized and I tried to find people who I could talk to who could at least talk to me about the institution. And of course, my real hope was to meet someone who remembered Judy. And unfortunately, the person who'd been her social worker and who I'd been in touch with when Judy first came to California um, had herself developed Alzheimer's, so mm -hmm. I couldn't talk to her. But I did, I did try to get some other, some other perspectives from other people who had known Judy and had known the two of us. Uh, there was a next-door neighbor. I was able to find her. So that was interesting because um, my mother's perspective was very different from mine, and I, I really needed to get a little reinforcement. 
Yeah, especially with a parent, right? Because we're, we sort of start off thinking they're just telling us the truth about the That's, world. Right, right, right. So that was really helpful to find, track down this next door neighbor who was, she was on my side. So, um, yeah. did you find yeah, as you wrote? I very the, much tried to. Yes. Did you find as you wrote that you that you had a um, that more came to you? Did it open up the sort of the gates of memory? I did. Absolutely, I absolutely, absolutely did find that, and that was um, wonderful and sort of thrilling to have these other memories come that that felt, you know, completely true, but that had been buried somewhere. So when I was the most focused on writing the book, I really, it meant a lot to me to get up really early and to just go into that place of those memories and keep writing from there. And um, that was a lot of my best writing happened that way. The other way that um, the writing in the book happens is more during Judy's and my lifetime together, her last, the last 20 years of her life when she was in California. I spent a tremendous amount of time with her, and we would just hang out at the board and care where she lived maybe the last 10 years, which was about a block from our house, and I would just hang out with her. And often I would um, write while we were doing things or while we were in bed looking at her magazines, and she would help me type. And um, But anyway, I have a lot of wonderful, wonderful memories, things that became memories that are in the book that are that seem incredibly real and that's partly because it was really was in that moment you know, that <laughs> that's great yeah so um so this is a story about two little twin girls one of whom eventually through lots of uh trials and tribulations gets to grow up and become a world famous artist and the other of whom eventually through trials and tribulations gets to grow up and become a published author um, uh, and you and you are the second of these two can you talk about i mean a lot of this book is about judy's journey to becoming an artist but can you talk about that in relationship to your journey to becoming a published author yes i i feel very much to me like we both had a shared life and, and, in, and in some ways a shared being, but we had two different kinds of voices and, um, and Judy's voice was, was visual and tactile and full of color and richness in that way. And, and I, I don't know, very early on I had a sense that I, I was the other half of that twinness and the other half of our voice, which was through words. And Judy had become deaf uh, through probably, well, she was partially deaf, and then she had scarlet fever as a very little girl. So she didn't have language or um, words in any way. So I, I was the words. And I had a, a sense of that both in feeling very connected to our life in that way and also feeling a kind of responsibility to telling our story through words. So it was both those things. Yeah, yeah. When when did you start to write in your in your childhood or in your or not in your childhood? But <laughs> uh, I, I think I always liked to write, and and actually in terms of storytelling, I remember uh, when I would spend the night at a friend's house 
like if there were other siblings or anything, I would always be the person who told the stories. So I was thinking, actually, I think storytelling did start really early for me mm-hmm. in those ways. But in terms of writing, I think it started mostly with journal writing and um, Judy was institutionalized when she was seven and a half, and and it was a very lonely, lonely time for me in my childhood after that. And I think I did, I read a tremendous amount. I loved poetry. I started writing poetry and um, started journaling. So I think all those things built together to, to move me in the direction of writing. Mm. And you are also somebody who really creates groups. I mean, in fact, you kind of launched probably the, the like, er book writing world because you brought me in in my <laughs> 20s to teach a group of, of women uh, writing. And um, and I know you have different writing groups. Can you, and a lot of our listeners are, are writers, and can you talk about kind of the role of, of writing groups in your writing life? I think it's been incredibly important, starting with the group that you led with these women who were all your mother's age and you were amazing. But um, that group is still going. And what was that, like 20 years ago? Oh, not quite, but yeah, close. <laughs> oh, yeah, nice. maybe. Maybe it was. Maybe it was, yeah, it was my book 20 was years ago. I don't know. And then, uh, and then I've been in a, a, a group called a completion group for many years where everyone made, the, um, made a commitment in order to be in the group, you had to be committed to actually getting your book, finishing your book and getting it published. And, and how and long were you in that group? Yeah, a really long time. Um, <laughs> but you did it. But I did it, yes. I think there's still uh, two that are kind of hanging on, haven't quite published their books yet. But anyway, basically that's been great. And then I've been in some of, I mean, not ongoing, ongoing groups, but some programs that you've led that have been really important to me. So I, and the group that's gone on forever that, that you started teaching us is now just meets on Fridays to do a free ride together. And it just absolutely keeps me connected to that world because, yeah, there's so many things in life that can be incredibly distracting and um, it pulls me back all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Any advice about starting groups? Uh, I think it's awfully easy. Just find a couple friends or find someone you know who's a wonderful teacher to work with you and pick a day. You've got it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're you're good at that, too. Yeah, well, I don't know. I like to. What do you think is next for you? Uh, Next for me, I think I'd like to either, as I said, put together some of the things that are not in this book and and create something else, or there's another parallel story in the memoir, which is about um, when I'm in college, giving birth um, pretty much in secret and having a baby who's, who's given up for adoption and then searching for her later, which was not that uncommon back this was 1965 and um anyway one of the interesting things about that is when i was searching for her and finally told people you know 20 years later that i had a child two of my close friends it turned out also were birth mothers 
and had never said anything. So it wasn't uncommon, but it's another story that has a lot of layers and um, I think a lot of issues that are important and were important then. That So I think about maybe writing a book about that, a memoir. Yeah, that sounds exciting. It's interesting to think about, um, you know, the, the idea of it's having layers. Yes. And, I mean, we, we when we interviewed Meredith Marin about memoir, and she was she said she was looking for a book that had where the where the issues she was talking about, I guess, applied to more to more people than just she. You know, that it was that it was sort of represented a segment of the population. Mm-hmm. I'm probably people should go back and listen to that episode. It'll be in the show notes. But um, so you know, thinking about what makes something a story that might be a book. Right. So you're you're saying like layered. Well, I actually have to say the thing that hooks me when you talk about it is the idea of a group of friends sharing a history that nobody talks about. And, uh-huh. Uh, uh-huh. and it's, you know, and it's interesting because the truth is, you know, there is a nonfiction book, The Girls Who Went Away, right? Who, right. Um, it's amazing. Yeah. And um, it's a great book. You know, and so it's interesting because it's obviously a large enough phenomenon that that would happen. But interestingly, you also talked about your dad not revealing to his co-workers that he was Jewish. Yeah, he, my dad and, and one of his colleagues who had actually brought him to Berkeley had a conversation about 10 years after he got there in which they admitted to each other that they were both Jewish. Oh, so. that's very interesting. Huh. Um, I think that we live in a culture where a lot of really obvious things uh, we treat as secrets do you know what i mean absolutely and absolutely. i guess and i guess that's I, the theme of this book as well in the sense that sort of judy herself was was kind of treated as a secret yes she was and um and hidden away and in a sense that's what happened with the the baby that i gave birth to so and there were societal pressures both for my mother you know people were very much um pressured to to put their children in institutions and were told that it would be the best thing for the rest the other children and um and then you know when young women gave birth and weren't married they were certainly told that they had nothing to give this baby and mm. there was a family waiting who did oh and in terms of the book that i'm thinking about which i'm not sure but um taylor my daughter who was adopted and who who I found, you know, 20 years later, she, she, she and her mother who raised her and I have lunch together, you know, a couple times a year. And, you know, we're, we have a nice bond. And I think that's fairly unusual. And I, I've thought that it might be interesting to look at the whole experience from, um, from each person's very different perspective. Mm-hmm. How would you do that? as a novel or would you interview her her other mother or how would you do that i i've thought of taylor certainly writes and you know i was thinking of each person writing theirs or that i interview her other mother and write it based on that mm-hmm. or then i think it would be interesting to see maybe two, three, four different stories of how reunions go, because they certainly go a lot of different ways mm-hmm. and what it means to people. Um, so I don't know. I haven't quite figured it out yet, but I'm processing it. Do you mostly think in terms of nonfiction? I mean, do you ever think of taking something like that and making it a novel, or do you think more about how to, how to research it and bring the voices in? 
I, I just started thinking more about doing it as a novel. I think I, I tend to think more in terms of nonfiction, but um, I love the idea of being able to to maybe put two or three different characters, people in my life that I know, and turn them into one character, and you know, and. <laughs> It There's people fun. in my life I want to do that with, too. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's interesting because, you know, I you know I think about you read this, um, you know, read all these different things. And they talk about, like, we don't, as people, really respond to these large statistical statements. What we respond to is individual stories that right. reflect that large statistical experience. Um so I think you can definitely go either way. And I think the truth is having launched a book already, I think just for me, I think there's something about the weight of a real experience that people dig into differently than they uh-huh. do novels. Like novels are wonderful, great things, and you can totally take them on in that same, you know, you can t- take on the same topic. But as someone who sort of lived it, who has this experience in, in doing this kind of writing, um, you know, you do have an opportunity, I think, to pick the way that works for you. Because certainly it's true that people do combine characters in nonfiction as well. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, there is. Who a- would you combine? <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to talk about it now. I'll read about it later. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think there's really important issues and I think Angie you're probably right that writing from the perspective of someone who's actually lived through it in some way is is more compelling in some ways and I know um, my sister's story mm-hmm. is almost unbelievable right I mean people if I'd made it up they wouldn't <laughs> give it any right. credence at all because it's just too too preposterous but um you know the fact that it's it's a true story and she's a real person and uh, makes it very very powerful and I think very meaningful to other people who maybe um, have someone in their life with Down syndrome or with a disability whose whose potential hasn't yet been tapped or given any opportunity. You know, is, is there is it something? Have you talked at all with your agent or? editor about uh, like a second book or any expectations or anything like that mm, no not really I, I think my agent more than my editor mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is is very supportive of that but but not very specifically there's um, this is a kind of an aside but there's someone who's interested in optioning um, the book to be a film, mm. and um, so that's kind of exciting. That's very exciting. Yeah, it's many lives. Yes, <laughs> right. One one of the things that is so ins- who do you want to play you? Oh, we used to say years ago in my writers group, we used to say Susan Sarandon, but now you know I'm too old and she's too old. And- <laughs> I don't know if yeah, maybe Sandra Bullock or something. Yeah, I don't know. I haven't figured that out yet. Well, yes, you're open, open to uh, oh yeah, open to numerous, numerous yes. movie stars. <laughs> right, it's a fun game to play, though. It is. It certainly is. 
Um, I just, one of the things I loved, you know, well, in both in life and in the book is um, Judy's, you know, she's, she's, well, she's, what's the, she doesn't tie her, her self identity as an artist in any way to the outside world's response. Mm-hmm. Um, Although you you did you have talked about um at some of your event about the ways she might have noticed it or she might have changed in response to being given a more central kind of a role or, or being appreciated or, or something right right um so maybe you can talk a little bit about that um how the she extra scarves. how she did change yeah the extra scarves and then also <laughs> um but, well let's start there let's talk about how how fame did impact Judy and then yeah, I have a okay. question too. well. Judy, as I said earlier, did not have any language and um, didn't, there, she wasn't that connected to the outside world. I mean, even times when I took her to a show or a show that she was in, it was uh, very much a, a kind of non-essential part of her life. But she, she knew that people started coming to watch her work and... Um, Sometimes they were taking notes, and she she was aware that she was the focus of um, attention. And w- the one of the um, amazing things that happened is she always liked to wear one small scarf. And as time went on, and and she was noticed more and more, her she would the number of scarves would grow, and then she would have like a hat and a scarf and. Then she would find a feather, and she would put three scarves in one hat and two feathers, and uh, and she started decorating herself almost like she was one of her sculptural pieces. And she also her her own pieces uh, just grew larger and larger and larger. So there was something about this being appreciated that she was aware of, but I she certainly didn't have any way of connecting the dots in terms of you know. This is a piece of art, and this could go in a museum, and somebody might buy this piece, and maybe I'll be written up in the New York Times. And, you know, that wasn't the way that she was enjoying it, but she certainly enjoyed it. Do do you think there are some advantages to that, to that lack of awareness? I mean, is there anything you want to emulate about her absorption in her art as art? Well, yeah, well, I think it's wonderful to to be able to create without... uh, paying much attention to what your audience is going to think or who they might be or how much this might be appreciated to come from a a deeper, more central place in yourself, which is certainly what she did. Well, it was sort of interesting looking through the book. There's an image of a sculpture that she made from paper towels. Mm-hmm. And... You know, it, it's sort of interesting to think about the process itself and what it offers uh, the artist, you know, as almost... I, I know that, and don't take this personally, but Elizabeth gets a little cranky when she doesn't write. <laughs> and, um, you know, and so it's interesting to think about what it, what is that essence of an artist. And I think there's something to the discomfort one feels when one is not able, able to, create, to do the yeah. thing they, they need to do. And I think that that paper towel... The monochromatic paper towel um, is such a great example of, okay, they're doing renovations. I don't have access to my stuff. I'm just going to make them wet and right. knot them up. Uh, what 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 is it that you have your little artistic compulsions around? 
Uh, well, I, I love, absolutely love the story of, of Judy having to find something to create with when all materials were gone, making, making her own materials. And I would say I'm noticing more the lack than the actual um, experience right now. And it may be why I'm feeling kind of disjointed and, and cranky myself because I haven't been writing very much. And um, I think for me, the, the only way that really works is to get up really early and make that time my writing time. And I'm like a thousand times happier when I do that. Mm. But um, I don't know of, of other little compulsions. I take notes. I carry a piece of paper around with me and when I notice something that's strikes me in some way I, I definitely write it down I think Anne Lamott does that too mm -hmm. but um, I can't think of anything else you've talked to me in the past about recording too, recording your voice yes I, I really like doing that I have a tendency to have the recorder then get broken or lose it or something <laughs> <laughs> but it does work really well for me especially like going for walks and I have a little recorder I can wear around my neck. And of course, you can use your iPhone that way. There's a recording yeah. app for that. Um, so, yeah, because I think a lot of us get some of our best ideas when we're walking or running or, you know, doing something repetitive that um, we're, we're not interacting with somebody else exactly at the same time. Yeah. Have you tried any of the dictation apps on your phone? No. But I'd like to. <laughs> I mean, just because, you know, it's a very similar thing. And actually, I, I was taking the dog for a walk today and working on my paper as I was walking. And it was quite helpful to sort of get away from the computer, but have something that was typing for me. And it wasn't perfect, but it's like 95% accurate. Yeah, that's, and that's... You, can, you can tell when it says, like, Weebleton, that that wasn't what you meant, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, right. Is that, is, that's like Dragon Dictator or something yeah, like yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. They have yeah. um, Dragon Anywhere, but there's also, you know, they have a built-in one on your iPhone that you can use as well, just in, you know, into your notes. Uh, the Dragon oh, Dictation right. Well, no, no, I, I actually, I that's, that's true. I do do that. Yeah. Yeah. And it gets it, it's true. It gets it almost, almost absolutely right. It's just incredible, right? Yeah. Is there any sense for you, Joyce, in, in, in finally, you know, getting this book out into the world of, of, of taking on your own sense of, of maybe deserving an extra scarf around your head or anything <laughs> like that? Yeah. I mean, I, I do have that sense. It kind of comes and goes. And as I said, I'm mad at myself for not, not being in more in my internal writing um, self right now but other than that like I've really enjoyed the talks which I didn't expect to and um, I enjoy the feeling that this is something really important and that it's uh, it feels almost like my mission in it. and and I feel like I'm doing a good job with it and um, yeah I think I feel like I deserve another scarf yes nice. <laughs> It is time for our Steal This segment. T.S. Eliot said, amateur poets borrow, professional poets steal. And he wasn't the first one to say it. So each week we ask ourselves and our guest, 
what is something that you have come across in your readings or other wanderings that you would like to take and make your own? Um, would you like to begin, Joyce? Okay. A lot of you may know about the L'Arche community in France. And um, it's a place where people with developmental disabilities and um, and those who are their companions live together and learn from each other. Mm. And I, I can't think how to do that, but I, I think Judy and I were that to each other. And um, I'd like to create that again in my life in some way and maybe somehow help other people be able to do that because I think there's so many gifts that can be given in both directions. Mm, that's wonderful. Hmm. Angie, how about you? Um, I was just reading a great book called Failed It. And um, you want to... Oh, we'll put it in the show notes, but just to mention how the cover looks. Well, the cover is though it's put on backwards. So it's, it's you know... Of course, my kids have been reading so much manga that they didn't notice anything was wrong with it because the cover is the correct side if you're reading manga. So it took them a minute. Um, but it's got a number of really fun pictures in there. And the idea is really to sort of, you know, how do you take mistakes and move it forward in, in some kind of direction? Oh, I love it. And, um, you know, and sometimes the, you know, he's got these wonderful pictures of like, a balcony, like a two-story building with a balcony on the top floor and a sliding glass window and a balcony on the set bottom floor and a wall. So there's just like a balcony going to nothing. Or a um, tree, not a tree, like a bench that was like installed backwards so it faces a wall as well so you couldn't put your legs in it anyway. Just like a series of these things that are sort of awkward and strange, but what do those weird... Uh, juxtapositions of expectation through failure offer and so I think that this week I'm really sort of looking at um you know having that more fun attitude about failure as I do revision (laughs) so you know my goal is to come up with something that just doesn't work at all and I think I've really done that several times and so this week I'm gonna really just knock it out of the park with, oh, good. Uh, things that don't work. I heard some, I don't remember who now, but I heard a poet uh, being interviewed on a podcast. And um, if I can remember it, I'll put it in the show notes. But, um, but the, you know, in the, um, she said, is there, is there a mistake you made early on or something like that? And he said, well, I guess um, all my early poems could be considered mistakes in the sense that they were really bad. And he's like some prestigious poet now. It was just so <laughs> wonderful. It was just like... But you have to, what else can you do but make mistakes, right? Yeah. That's, that's our job. I love it. <laughs> well, I'm reading Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel, and it's it's just I, it's just kind of blowing me away, even though I'm, I'm hardly getting to read. I get to read, for like, for 10 minutes every night. But uh, she does this amazing thing where she'll just slip in um, a little... Did I talk about this on a podcast already? We're doing so many summer podcasts that I'm forgetting. <laughs> but she'll slip in a little um, 
kind of this is this was the last time this would ever be true or something like some like at the end of a chapter where you're just going along all of a sudden boom like everything is you know is different than you than you thought and or how you understood everything has to be twisted and turned suddenly and and it's so thrilling somehow and it's this mixture of of this kind of perfectly wrought realistic world where everything's going crazy and then these kind of twists uh, where, you know, where nothing is as you expect. And I just love that. It's just, you know, it's incredible craft and then incredible storytelling. So I'll steal anything I can get from that. <laughs> that <laughs> sounds great. This is wonderful. Joyce, will you tell our listeners how they can find out about your book and find out about your events and find you on social media? Okay. Uh, if you look, if... Um, Judith Scott Artist is a Facebook page on my Facebook page, which is Joyce Scott. And um, there's a website called judithandjoyce.com. And I think both of those have calendars of, of the events that are coming up. And then um, the book is for sale on Amazon and uh, through Beacon Press, which is our publisher. And um, through a number of independent um, bookstores, and I guess that's yeah, those are, those most are of good the ways, ways to good yeah. ways to get connected. This would all work. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, thank you so so much for talking with us. Yes. Thank you. It was that just was really fun. Wonderful. And this is Storymakers Show. You, If you will go to iTunes or Stitcher and rate us, that will help other like-minded folks or unlike-minded folks who just might be interested find <laughs> our podcast. So we would really appreciate it. And show notes are available at storymakersshow.com along with previous episodes. All right. Thank you.